you complied to all the rules and the people that were making the rules are laughing in your face and you're still listening to them. You've got to be stupid. Matt, why did you think you lost your job at Sky after nearly 20 years? Um, I think it was probably a combination uh, of a couple of things. Uh, I think the direction that the company were going in in terms of, uh, in terms of diversity uh, and that kind of stuff was probably one of the reasons. Um, I, I don't think I've made myself particularly popular um, with my stance on uh, not wearing a, a Black Lives Matter badge uh, on the television uh, and also for my social media posts questioning the, uh, uh, the ridiculousness of lockdowns. So why didn't you wear a Black Lives Matters badge? Uh, I didn't feel comfortable. I actually did wear it uh, for one show because we were... Uh, we were told we had to pretty much had to wear it, otherwise, you know, um, it, it wouldn't be very good for us if we didn't. Right. Um, and we were told that about a minute before we were due to go on air, so we didn't have a lot of time to think about it or or discuss it. Uh, so I actually did wear it for one program. Um, but I I'd previously, the last, but a couple of weeks before that, I'd been looking into the the Black Lives Matter organisation, uh, and I wasn't particularly enamoured with what I saw, um, and I didn't agree with what they stood for. Um, so I felt very uncomfortable wearing that badge. Uh, and so I made my um, point clear to the producer after the show that that would be the last time that I would wear it. Um, I would be prepared to wear any other anti-racism badge. Um, and, uh, and and I don't think that probably went down too well with the, with the big bosses. Um, and I don't think the... the the fact that I was going against the mainstream narrative um, probably did me any favours either. I was talking to Nigel Farage a few weeks ago and he um, told me some stuff about Black Lives Matter that I didn't understand about how it was run and what it was about. So what is it about it that you don't like? Um, I, I, I think it was the, the whole defunding the police uh, side of things didn't sit comfortably with me. Um, I, I'd heard reports that perhaps... Uh, the funding wasn't going into the places where it was meant to be going. And I think since uh, since that time, stuff has come out about where the money has been spent from the people who run the organisation. Um, and I just, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. Um, you know, I, I was seeing all the riots that were happening in America. Um, I, I, and I didn't feel like I, I wanted to support that organisation. Um, and, and I thought that if we were going to have a, a message of, of anti-racism. I think there was better ways we could have done it than chosen those, choosing those three words. Um, and you said some of your social media posts, I may have not seen them all, didn't mm -hmm. make you very popular with Sky. Um, so what were they? Uh, I was basically questioning um, the, the whole lockdown situation, um, whether they made any difference. Um, I was uh, questioning... Um, one of the one of the tweets I got warned for um, when the Premier League season got curtailed and they were trying to get it started back up again, uh, they were doing a lot of testing amongst the Premier League clubs, uh, and the Premier League would would come out and they would uh, they would say how many positive tests there's been, but they wouldn't name where which clubs those tests were at, um, and so. Uh, the only way you could find out who those tests were was if the clubs themselves decided themselves to come out and say, yes, those four tests were ours and, and all this kind of stuff. 
And a few of the teams did that, not all of them. Um, and I just happened to make a comment that uh, it, it seemed a huge coincidence that the, the teams that were coming out and admitting to having positive tests were teams that were either in the relegation zone or just above the relegation zone uh, and teams who clearly would have profited from the season not being started again. And I kind of made that observation. Uh, and apparently one of the uh, chief executives of the Premier League clubs involved at the bottom of the table wasn't very happy with me, decided to ring Sky and complain about me. Uh, so I got the phone call going, can you not do tweets like that, please? When in fact, all I actually tweeted was facts. Uh, and these days it appears that actually spreading facts uh, gets you in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Now you've got um, more time for stuff like this. So now I've got more time to come on podcasts and have a chat about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you find out the news that Sky were um, letting you go? And I, I don't like using words fired, etc. I don't know what went on, which is why I'm asking you. But sure. Was it? Yeah. Tell us how you found out about it and what uh, actually happened. I was, I was invited onto a Zoom call. Uh, under the pretext of discussing uh, the upcoming season. Um, uh, this is about a week before the season started, maybe two. Um, and, uh, and so I got a, a, an email with a, an invite to a Zoom call. Uh, and on the email was, a, was another name who was joining the call who I didn't recognise. Uh, and at that point I thought, that's a bit strange, who's this bloke? <laughs> Uh, and then within head of HR, within five <laughs> seconds, uh, I was I was told there was no more work for me at Sky. Uh, I had about seven months left to run on my contract, um, but I was told that I wouldn't be needed anymore. Um, and that was it. Did Fif they give 15 you a years, Fifteen years of service. Um, did they give me a reason? They said, uh, "What was the reason that they said?" Um, I think they, gave a, they didn't really give a, a particular reason. Just said the show was going in a different direction uh, was the words I think they used. Um, and, uh, and that was it. And so I asked the question, uh, does this have anything to do with my posts on social media? Uh, to which their reply was, um, well, we have to take into account the reputation of the company when making these decisions. So uh, at which point I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, because at the moment you're employing somebody who spat at a girl from his car. Who was that? Uh, Jamie Carragher, uh, who spat at a young girl through his car. They suspended him for six months and then brought him back into the fold. And I said, um, it's interesting. I said, but you're, you're employing somebody who spat at a young girl from his car. Do you not think that might have harmed the reputation of your company at all? Uh, and I got told, we can't talk about other people on this. So that was it, really, and that was pretty short and sweet, and that was the way that uh, I ended 15 years of service to that company. Wow, 15 years with Sky. Do you feel betrayed? No, not really. No. How do you feel? Uh, I feel relieved now. Ah. I don't have to work for them. Yeah, I think they've turned into a, a, a not a very nice organisation. Um, and... Quite frankly, I feel like I'm better off out of it. And were there times before lockdown started that there were things you wanted to speak up about but didn't? Why did you choose when you did to start speaking up on things? Um, no, I don't think there was a time before lockdowns where I, 
I was always quite open with with any opinions. I was quite. Um, I've always been uh, on social media. I've been willing to engage with the fans and give my opinions on things, and it's never been a problem. Um, you know, because we had a, a society before where you were allowed to have an opinion, and if it was different to everyone else's, that was that was fine. It was just different, and you just cracked on with it. Uh, and then in uh, March 2020, the whole world seemed to change very quickly. And uh, having an opinion then uh, was something that was frowned upon if it didn't uh, coincide with the, what the government and the mainstream media were telling you. So, yeah, there's this word now, cancel culture, isn't there? I mean, do you feel that's what happened to you, that you were cancelled? Um, was I cancelled? No, I was sacked. Right. Uh, I wasn't cancelled. Um, I still have a voice. I still have a, a Twitter account, which is one of the one of the few <laughs> that hasn't <laughs> been uh, uh, been banned yet so far. So yeah, I'm not sure what I'm doing right. Actually, I mean, there's a lot of people have their accounts suspended and stuff for tweeting things, um, mm. but somehow I've managed to escape that so far. So uh, uh, no, I haven't been cancelled. I, I still have an opinion. I come on podcasts like this and give my views yeah. um, uh, and. Uh, I've now um, using a different social media site a lot more than I use Twitter. Rumble. Uh, so I've uh, no, so I've joined oh, Getter. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've been quite active on there, and, and I'm uh, I'm far more active on there than I ever will be on Twitter from now. Mm. And what's your um, profile on Getter so we can follow you? Uh, same as on Twitter at Mattis Seven. Yeah. 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 It, the world definitely has. Well, we experienced something similar. Okay. Because um, we got, I don't know what you call it, let's call it a shadow ban on YouTube. Our YouTube was going wild. Okay. And I interviewed David Icke for the second time. Yeah. I interviewed him because a lot of my listeners were like, a lot of the stuff he said has come true. We want to hear David Icke again. So, okay. And his video was going wild and then they just shut it down, it down and us and killed our channel. And then we started building it back up. And Harry had to edit it much more carefully. And even saying the C word, <coughs> even saying that on Facebook or YouTube, the, the AI, the algorithms can hear it yep. and you get shut down now by robots. Wow. What do you think about that? Uh, I think it's a very scary world that we're living in when um, things like that happen and you can't have open and honest debate about conversations that are to do with what's going on in the world. I think it's, it's a horrible world um, and it's a world that I kind of associated with North Korea and China, places like that, uh, and yet it's happening right on our doorstep and um, a large part of the population don't really give a shit that it's happening, uh, whereas I find it incredibly scary um, uh, and I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to end up living in a world that is that has been what I perceived as, you know, a communist regime. Um, don't want that world, and that's why I, I speak out, and that's why I'll carry on speaking out uh, because I don't want my children to grow up in that world. Is that also why you stepped down from your Southampton ambassador role? Uh, the Southampton ambassador role was because I was getting uh, um, I was getting a lot of criticism. Um, for uh, well, it was probably a clumsy attempt on my part uh, to try to let people know that actually when there's a war going on it's not just one side that does propaganda 
you know, if there's a war going on, both sides will use propaganda. Um, uh, and I, I, pro I used a, a clumsy example uh, to do that. And, it, and I came in for a lot of it. A lot of uh, it was a, a tweet from Unity News Network who um, were questioning whether the massacre in Butcher had actually taken place. Um, and so I, um, I, I re just retweeted it uh, with the with the the idea from from what I was from what was in my head is that letting people know that actually both sides. Um, do do propaganda, so just be careful what you believe. And that was kind of what I was trying to say to everyone. Um, and everyone just took it as though, oh, he doesn't believe that the massacre in Bush actually, actually took place and he's a bad person. And so loads of people started ringing Southampton Football Club. He shouldn't be your ambassador. Uh, and the football club were great. You know, they, were, they were fine. They, they weren't going to sack me. And I, but I just said, look, I don't want you getting all that stick on my behalf. That's not fair on you guys. So I'll tell you what, I'll just step down as ambassador. No problem. I ain't got a problem with that. I've gone back to St Mary's since then. That's um, madness, though. You uh, are Southampton. <laughs> you are. You are everything yes, about this. Do you know what? It's it. it the ambassador role was not. You know, it, I didn't do a lot of work for them. Uh, I did the occasional bit of work with uh, with their corporate sponsors and that kind of stuff. It hasn't really affected my life financially to not be Southampton ambassador. Um, in fact, it hasn't really affected my life at all to not be Southampton ambassador. I still want to go to the games and watch my team play, you know, um, and that hasn't changed, so it doesn't really affect me that much. So if I could do that small little gesture to stop the football club from uh, getting complaints from the uh, uh, from the idiots who can't think for themselves, then, um, you know, that's, that's fine by me. I don't mind doing that. I want to talk about your legacy and your football career as well. Um, I just think it's really refreshing to talk to someone who is prepared to speak up and not just is prepared to speak up, quite frankly, because it's just so much risk now. I can understand why yeah. people wouldn't want to, because it's yeah, career yeah. suicide, isn't it? It is. It is. Well, you say that. Um, it, it hasn't been in, in my case. Uh, uh, I've managed to uh, replace the work at Sky quite comfortably. What are you doing uh, now? Uh, and so I do after-dinner speaking. I, I work for... Uh, a TV company that broadcasts the, uh, the Dutch League and the Premier League out to Indonesia. So I do a bit of TV work for them still. Um, and uh, I'm uh, on Getter, which uh, I do live streams on, which, uh, which are paid stuff. So, you know, I've managed to find plenty of other work. So mm. although people go, uh, it's career suicide, in my case, it, it actually hasn't been and hasn't made a, uh, a huge financial difference to me mm. in my life. And you said you feel free. And I feel a lot better. I sleep very well at night. Um, and you didn't before. Uh, uh, and I think for the last six months of my of working at Sky, uh, I felt a bit uncomfortable working there, frankly, given what, their, uh, what the news channel was pumping out the whole time uh, with, the, with the propaganda. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel very happy in my life, very free. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if I had to do the same again, knowing the consequences, knowing the stick that I took for the decisions that I made to speak out, then I would still speak out again. And how did you feel when the media industry that you'd served for nearly 20 years kind of turned on you and how did you f deal with that open criticism? Um, that's a good question actually. How did I deal with it? 
Uh, I, I deal with it by not really giving a shit. Uh, <laughs> that comes across. <laughs> if, I, if I'm quite honest, uh, quite frankly, uh, the people that were criticising me are not worth my time to think about. Uh, I think a lot of them are morally bankrupt people. Um, and uh, I wouldn't give them uh, the pleasure of thinking that they're getting to me in some way, shape or form, because they certainly don't. And how has the media, how has, how has, <laughs> how has the media changed in the last 20 years? In the last 20 years? Well, we, you got in Four. in 02, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, well, I, I retired in 2002. I signed my first contract uh, in 2005 right. uh, with Sky, I think it was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how, how has it changed? Uh, it, it's changed because you have to be so much more careful about what you're allowed to say. Uh, that's the way it's changed. Um, people are now policing your speech, your thoughts, um, and that never used to happen. You used to be able to speak freely, have a laugh. People used to have a sense of humour. People used to know when you were joking and when you were being serious. Uh, and um, they weren't so quick to jump on any uh, slight bit of... Uh, uh, something that you say that could be that could be misconstrued in some way. That people are looking deliberately looking to twist your words and twist the meanings of your words, um, uh, and that's the biggest way it's changed in the in the last twenty years. And do you think we? Well, I think I know the answer to this. So let me change the question. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think we are at right now in the evolution of free speech? Oh, that's a big question. Where do I think we are? Uh, I think we're at crossroads uh, right now where uh, we are very close. We have to decide which way we're going to go in society, where we go down a totalitarian state where all your thoughts are policed and your uh, words are policed the whole time by robots and algorithms and all that shit. Um, or... We stand up as a people, and enough people stand up and go, no, we're not having this. This isn't the way we want to be living our, our lives. This isn't what, the way we want our children to live our lives in the future. We want them to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoyed as kids and, uh, and adults for a the, for the big part of our lives. Um, and so I think there's still a, a big battle ahead. Um, and, and I don't know which way it's going to go right now. How do we stand up? I agree with you. I thought that the attempt to basically cancel Joe Rogan was outrageous. Yep. I thought the ultimatum given to Piers Morgan was pretty outrageous, especially who it came from and the value they're not providing. Like, for example, I'm just going to say it. Meghan Markle got paid something like 30 million advance to do a podcast. She's done one episode in two years. And then right into the um, ITV to ask the apology or removal of Piers Morgan. <laughs> like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and I do these videos and I get millions of views talking about standing up for other people's freedom of speech because one day it'll be you. Yep. But a lot of people say on my videos, well, what do I do? They don't know what to do. Do not comply. That would be my advice. Sounds like Robocop. <laughs> but when you say do not, do not comply do not to comply what? Do not comply to stupid rules which is pretty much what I've done for the last two years. So 
I ignored lockdown rules. I saw my family. Wow. Uh, uh, because I saw the rules. Well, the government ignored lockdown rules, didn't they? Well, exactly. Uh, and they, they ignored the rules because they realised that the threat wasn't what they were telling us it was. Uh, and I knew that the threat wasn't what, it, what it, they were telling us it was. Uh, that's what I believed from the people that I'd spoken to, the evidence that I'd seen. Um, and so I decided to make my own decision about what risks I would take as to whether or not I would see my family. Um, uh, and so, yeah. Uh, I, I haven't complied with their ridiculous suggestions. Uh, I didn't get coerced into taking a vaccine. Um, and I stand up for myself every day. And if, if they knew it wasn't as serious as they were making it out to be and they were breaking their own rules, then why were those rules put in place? Exactly right. And that's what people who have been going along with the, the whole... COVID cult nonsense, um, I like to call it. Uh, that's a question that they should be asking themselves. But then you get you complied, conspiracy theorists, you, don't you? You complied to all the rules and the people that were making the rules are laughing in your face and you're still listening to them. You've got to be stupid. You've really got to be stupid. Honestly, the, the people who made the rules disregarded all the rules. Now, if that doesn't wake you up to the nonsense of government, then I don't know what will. What I find outrageous is that there were people who couldn't see their dying loved ones because Absolutely. of these rules. Yet there's drink and vomit, yep. monthly basis in government, and yet all these people will still be in power. And But what can we do? We, you know, we'd vote these people in, but it's like, what's uh, the alternative? Uh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, the alternative is, is to not vote for any of the major parties. Um, because I don't think, uh, I think had Labour have been in, it would have probably been even longer lockdowns, quite frankly, from what uh, we saw of Keir Starmer during all that nonsense. Uh, we literally didn't have a choice as people. We either had lockdowns or we had really severe lockdowns. That was our choices with our political parties. Um, the two-party nonsense in this country is a joke, quite frankly. Um, and so I think the only way you could really make any difference is if everybody turned their votes away from the two major parties and we set up a different political structure. And the likelihood of that happening? Probably about zero. <laughs> Even despite everything that's happened in the world? Well, I mean, there, there's probably a bigger chance now than there was two years ago. Um, but it would take an incredible amount of will from a whole lot of people. Uh, and at the moment, uh, there are still a lot of people in the country who are still under the spell of the mainstream media uh, and will believe everything that the BBC and Sky News tell them. Um, and while that's the case, there'll, there'll never be any change. Let's pivot slightly, because okay. one... <laughs> just slightly. Um, I'm happy to talk about this all day, because I think it's rare you get to talk about it openly. <clears throat> and so thank you for that, Matt. No problem. And um, on the positive side... Yes. There is a decentralization movement fighting against this big tech, globalized, totalitarian, whatever we call it. Yeah. In that 
you can set up on Getter and Rumble, yeah. and you can have influence on your own social media channel, and we can push back against this centralized yeah. power. Um, do you see that movement? Do you see that as a positive thing? Uh, I see that as a very positive thing. Um, I, I sometimes think, how long will that last? Uh, how long before those, <laughs> those companies get bought out? by the people who want to control the narrative. <laughs> uh, um, so yes, at the moment there are things in place and, and places where they will allow you to speak freely and, um, and I hope they continue far and wide, but you, they need support. You know, they need support from people, they need people to, to ditch where they've been and go, okay, I've had enough that, I don't like your censorship. I'm I'm leaving your platform, uh, and I'm going to go to a platform that where you know we we don't get censored and we can speak freely. Mm. Um, that's I think over the last couple of years that's been one of the biggest things that has has made me question everything is the lack of the lack of debate on yeah. big issues. So you you weren't allowed to hear any dissenting voices that went against the narrative. You know, Ofcom strangled the the broadcasters. Um, with what they're allowed to put on the television. I get millions of views on my Facebook lives. I rely on them to reach my people. I rely on them. I rely, it hurts bad when mm. YouTube sort of shadow banned us. So it's a difficult one because on the one hand, if we're fully decentralized, we're, we're just talking into a black hole to the seven people that follow us on <laughs> Rumble or something. So kind of, we're in this, like you said, crossroads point where we still probably do need big tech, I'm going to call it, because mainstream media isn't social media, but social media to a certain degree has become mainstream media. I see it as anyway. Mm -hmm. So how do we do this dance of, mm. yeah, do you know what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, yeah, mm. no, I, I, I get it. There's almost like a, a transition taking place, um, but you still need a bit of the old to transition to the new. Yeah, because you're still using Twitter, for And that's example. why I still use Twitter, mm. to promote the fact that, you know, I, I'm, I actually, you, if you want to hear a lot more from me, you'll hear a lot more from me on Getter than you will on Twitter. Mm. Um, and obviously I've got nearly 600,000 followers on Twitter. Um, I only signed up to Getter in January, um, and it's already about 54,000, 55,000, something like that on, wow. on Getter. Um, so uh, at some point... Um, when I deem that that is right, and I've got enough people over on Getter, um, then I'll quite gladly ditch my Twitter account. What do you think about Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter, though? Not sure. Oh, why? Not sure. Uh, I don't. I I don't quite understand what he's trying to do with it. Um, uh, I know he's not in charge as yet and the deal hasn't gone through yet um, I'm I would like to wait to see evidence of what he does to that platform when he gets control of it uh, and I will only be convinced of his intentions when I see some positive acts towards uh, Getting rid of or being open and honest with the with the source and the algorithms, uh, being open and honest with the amount of bots and trolls that are on there, um, reinstating 
accounts that have been banned uh, or giving people the option to reinstate. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that uh, who have been banned who probably wouldn't go back to Twitter anyway. I think President Trump has already said that if he was if he was offered his account back, he wouldn't mm. take it anyway. Mm. Um, but I would need to see some some positive actions from him before I'm convinced of his intentions. So those three things you said you'd like to see, Elon Musk has publicly said he's going to do. Yes, there's a lot of things that people say they're going to do in public, of course. and they never do them when they get to the nitty gritty. Yeah. I mean, look at our government for a start. <laughs> well, I, I personally actually was quite excited with the news of Elon Musk um, potentially buying Twitter because I didn't see it coming. I felt like there was room in mainstream big tech, social media, whatever you call it, for uh, some disruption. Mm-hmm. I think what it has done, which is a positive thing, it is it has shed a light on a lot of the stuff that goes on at, at Twitter. Uh, you know, a lot of the the, the shadow banning. Um, a lot of the uh, the conservative accounts on there having their followers stifled, uh, having people that I've had uh, lots of people who have, have said to me, I, I was following you and then I, I checked and all of a sudden I'm not following you anymore. So they, they have the ability to make people unfollow you uh, when they choose, when they haven't even decided to do that, which, you know, I mean, that's just crazy that they're able to, to take away that choice from you. You've chosen to follow somebody and they've gone, actually, no, we don't want you following him. Cancel that. And it's just ridiculous. It's childish. Yeah. It's just crackers. Mm. Let's fast forward 20 years and look back on the last two years. What do we say about this in history? Uh, what do we say about this about in history? 2020. I'm hoping that in 20 years' time, they're looking back on these two years and going... Those governments were absolutely mental. What were they thinking about? Why did they Why did they chuck out? And this is one of the things for me. Why did they chuck out the pandemic preparations that they had in place? Why did they throw them out the window and copied what China did, which is basically what we what we did? Why has no journalist ever asked that question of a chief medical officer? or a prime minister in any of the hundreds of press conferences that they had down the years. That question was never asked. Why was the question never asked about the, uh, the cheap and effective treatments that were available that were suppressed to allow vaccines to come in under emergency use, use authorizations? Why, didn't, why has no journalist ever asked those questions to anybody in authority? The biggest failure of the last two years for me has been the lack of accountability um, that the that the journalists have had, they've had a chance to ask hard questions of people in positions of power, and they have absconded, and they have they have not held these people to account, and that for me has been a horrible thing to see that the media and the government together have been complicit in what has gone on in this country the last two years. Mm. The media, in an in a, in a open and free democratic society, the media should be the ones that are on the side of the people holding the government to account. This last two years, they have been completely the opposite of what they're meant to be, and they've been disgusting. A lot of people talk about they, they who control everything, and I've never been able to get 
a straight answer as to who they is. I hear New World Order, Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, Rothschilds, BlackRock, you know, all the... But who is they? Do you have any idea? Um, well, you've, you've just named... I mean, Sorry, did I answer your question? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> how many more do you want? <laughs> I mean, there's some names there that are uh, obviously um, been quite prominent in the last couple of years. Uh, I, I think if you look at what goes on with the with the World Economic Forum, um, I think when people say they, uh, I think you can you can pretty much take it that most of the people that turn up at Davos uh, are the people that they're referring to when they say they. Um, but there is also obviously some some people who don't wish to be uh, public profile figures who keep themselves. Um, hidden away, um, and yet have great influence on, on what goes on in the world. Mm. Mm. Something that really fascinated me, and I, some of these questions I'd done a lot of research on, but some of them, this one in particular, I, I didn't know your stance, but um, you have a stance on why there's an increase in cardiac arrests on a football pitch. Mm. Could you talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Well, uh, I saw in the first 12 months of the vaccine rollout, uh, I saw a lot of heart problems, players, young, fit, healthy athletes, not just footballers, in all sports, collapsing suddenly on their field of play. Um, and it's something that I'd never witnessed before. And um, I spent 17 years as a professional footballer, and not once in those 17 years of playing football matches every week, but just but training five days a week for 17 years. I never saw another player have a heart issue. Uh, and all of a sudden, I'm watching sport. I, I watch a lot of sport. My life is about sport. I don't give a shit about politics. I, I love sport, uh, and I watch a lot of it. And I'm seeing all these incidents take place. And it, it, it's not just a coincidence. It's too many for it to be a coincidence. Too many games get stopped because of incidents in the crowd, even now. Football yeah. matches being stopped nearly every weekend because of incidents in crowds with the, uh, with the fans having problems with, with, their, with their hearts and stuff. Um, and how there hasn't been an investigation into the increase is a complete dereliction of duty from the relevant authorities in the, uh, in the sports involved because... Uh, I, I, I find it bizarre that you can have that massive increase in these instances and nobody gives a shit and nobody wants to go, oh, why, why is this happening? Why, you know, why, why is nobody going, hang on, why are all these people collapsing? They're young, fit, healthy people. Why are, they, why are loads of them collapsing when they've never done that in the past? There may have been the isolated incident, um, which we all know about, but not in the numbers that we've seen. So why isn't somebody investigating? That's been my biggest bugbear with that kind of stuff. And, I, and, I'm, and people go, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> well, I go, no. Uh, we need to have an investigation to understand why it's happening. And if that investigation leads to the fact that it was the vaccines that are making it happen, then fine. But if it, they have an investigation and it leads to another cause, then I'm fine with that as well. But have an investigation. That's the, that's the biggest crux of it. Don't just sit back and go, oh yeah, there's another one. Uh, there's another 
uh, very young, fit, healthy footballer who's just died on a pitch. And, uh, and you go, well, yeah. you can't just sit by and not do anything, not find out, not have an investigation, because that is just disgusting. Mm. Harry, whilst I realise you're probably not going to be able to put this on the YouTube, I want to say it. Shane Warne's son came out in public saying he thought... That, that wasn't he... Shane Warne's son. Sorry? Wasn't it? That way, that's what you have to be very careful about. Um, so that guy who who uh, came out, who people were saying was Shane Warne's son, was not Shane Warne's really? son. Really? No. Who was he? Uh, it was uh, somehow, I've forgotten his name now, but it was it came out a couple of days after that. Right. Uh, uh, it was, uh, I think it was uh, an actor maybe in Australia. I, I can't remember the guy's name, but it certainly wasn't Shane's son. Um, uh, and again, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> you, there's just a, you just see a lot of it happening. There's a lot of heart issues. Uh, I think I, I think I saw this morning uh, a freedom of information request. Um, I can't remember what country it was in, um, but there had been a hundred percent increase in ambulance callouts for heart attacks over the last year, um, and so all these things warrant an investigation mm. but people are just going no 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 it's not the vaccine it's not the vaccine it's not the vaccine well how do you know it's not the vaccine yeah. you haven't even done an investigation investigate and then we'll see what it is um so yeah i just it it frustrates me that there is so much corruption probably um it's just a, it's just horrible mm. that, that people just don't really care about human life really they're willing to to sacrifice human life um for what money are they getting paid to do that to to just ignore it all what what other reason will they be doing it because if you if you're if you're a humane person you would want to try to find out the root cause of what's going on and why there's been an increase in massive increase in sports people collapsing on fields. Wow. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a bizarre time because, you know, you, you talk about stuff like that uh, and, and people go, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. Well, well, actually, I've had every vaccine I could possibly have had up until this one. Mm. Uh, and because of what was going on in the world, my suspicions were aroused and I decided to wait because I knew that COVID really the chances of it killing me at my age and my health status was incredibly minimal mm. so I, I decided that I was going to wait uh, and wait for some long-term safety data on these vaccines because they got they got made in a year apparently nine months you know how do you how do you monitor for long-term safety effects of a vaccine in nine months. You can't, it's impossible. Mm. Unless you can time travel, I can good luck to you. Uh, so my logical head goes, mm, not sure about that. I'm gonna wait. I'm not at any great risk. And um, and I think as time goes on, uh, and when you see the, the, the yellow card reporting scheme and the amount of adverse reactions that it has caused, and I'm not just looking at figures either, I'm talking to people I, I went to uh, I went to the Epsom Derby on Saturday with some friends, uh, and I didn't know until Saturday that um, 
she'd had the vaccine and, and had quite a bad case of shingles uh, straight afterwards, which her doctor told her uh, definitely couldn't be the vaccine, couldn't have been the reaction to the vaccine. Yet, if you go on to uh, the World Health Organization site and you, and you look at the possible adverse reactions to a vaccine, shingles is one of them. So how can the doctor be so sure that it wasn't the vaccine? So, and that I'm, there's lots of, lots of people that I've spoken to uh, who have had reactions to it, uh, who have had people die just after it. Uh, and, you know, I've, I feel vindicated in not taking uh, the vaccine and waiting for the safety data. Mm. So the reason after the last question I just sat and looked up at this exposed ceiling is because I'm kind of a bit torn because on the one hand it's pretty freaking depressing and your career is awesome <laughs> I'd like to honour that <laughs> but I also feel like it's so important that we stay in this space and keep talking about it yep I think it I think it's absolutely right I think you have to you have to keep shining a light on the truth um, because lies can only hide for so long or demand the truth. If we don't know what the truth is, demand, demand it the or truth. ask yeah. questions. Absolutely keep asking questions. Yeah. Keep putting pressure on people. Um, because it. Can, I think what I've been encouraged by was um, there was a lot of talk of mandating these vaccines for people. Um, mandating it, not just for the, the healthcare, the NHS workers, because um, if they would have got the NHS workers through, the next ones they would have come in for were us. Um, and then they would then they would, media, then they would have gone for the kids. No, yeah. I'm, oh. I'm talking about adults, oh, wow. general public. Yeah, um, uh, because you know the, the mandatory vaccinations were being touted uh, quite a lot. You had some very prominent figures like Andrew Neil and Piers Morgan uh, who were uh, openly criticising the people that have chosen not to get vaccinated. Um, uh, well, I, I'm sorry, but. The more time goes on, the more we've been vindicated. And they told us that there was five million of us that hadn't been vaccinated, which again was another lie in the media, um, because it's now come out that there's about 19 million, uh, 19 or 20 million people who haven't had a single vaccine uh, in this country. So that's not just a, a small minority, that's just a, another way of the propaganda that they used trying to make us feel like a uh, an insignificant minority. and. Um, they were wrong, and people stood strong, stood firm, uh, stood up for what they believed in, um, and the mandates for the uh, NHS workers were overturned. Um, and so, you know, I, I went on the protest march for for that, um, and soon after that protest march, it was it was rescinded. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think there are you know there are ways that we can still make a difference. Yeah, I think the old, the whole thing about not being able to travel if you didn't take the vaccine got that a lot of the, people. That was a lot of people who I spoke to. Went, I didn't really want the vaccine, but I just wanted to go on holiday. There you go. <laughs> a lot of my friends had said that. Yeah. And I kind of looked at them and just went, well, if nobody takes it, they can't stop me. No. No, Do not true. comply. Yeah. Do not comply. What if you Do have a wife fall. that wants you to comply? Do not fall for the propaganda techniques. So I think probably the best thing you could do, uh, actually, I, I watched a, I watched something on, I think it was on Telegram. Uh, there was a guy who was explaining the, the 17 different techniques of propaganda. 
Uh, it lasted about 20 minutes, and it's probably about the best 20 minutes of your life you could you could listen to. Right. Because it's really clever, because he goes through every single way that they make you do what they want you to do uh, by you know making you feel like a bad person or making you feel like you're part of a group uh, that you know using statistics to lie to you basically using graphs um, and it was it was it was, a, it was a fascinating 20 minutes and um, a lot of people could do with what what I, what I would love to do actually is hack into the BBC and and hijack their channel and stick that on there for 20 minutes and just let, <laughs> let people listen to it and then let the BBC come back on and then you could watch for all the techniques that they've just explained and how they do it. It was brilliant. Yeah, and it's called the British Broadcasting Corporation mm-hmm. as well. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, I'm not sure how long it's going to be in operation, quite frankly, because I think more and more people are... Not paying their license fees, getting their getting their um, entertainment from you know streaming and all yeah. that kind of stuff now, uh, and, and I I think the BBC's lifespan as a as a service that we have to pay for apparently I don't no. come and get me um, uh, <laughs> I think it's it's days are numbered yeah. uh, I really do and uh, if if why don't if they if they're so good why not go to a subscription model. If they th- if they're so good and so confident that they're brilliant at what they do, let it be a subscription and take on the other the guys that are, are in that sphere uh, and see how many subscribers you get. Yeah. Good luck to you. Mm. You ain't getting my subscription, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect opportunity to talk about something else. But now I just want to say thank you for being so open about that. Really appreciate it. No problem at all. Um, has I can't get in any more trouble that I'm ready to Yeah, sometimes we live these out and they can often go quite wild and we actually decided not to live this out for you. <laughs> Just, oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> has football changed since you were a player? And if so, what's changed? Yeah, it's changed massively uh, in the last 20 years. Um, obviously, the, the, the finances have changed massively. Um I think the um, one of the big, one of the biggest things that's changed is that they now play on these carpets that I don't recognise. <laughs> you know, where's the mud gone? <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of the crap pitches we used to have to play on, uh, and you see now in the depths of winter they're just playing on these lovely green carpets, and it's amazing the technology that uh, groundsmen have been able to use to to you know it would have been so much easier playing football on those pitches and what it was in half day, <laughs> you know. Um, so that, that's kind of two of the things that have changed. I think people take it a lot far too seriously now, quite oh, frankly. Nice. I think we forget sometimes that it's an entertainment industry. It's what, it's what it should be. Um, and I think it has just become, it's become all about business and money and it's not really what, what I went into football for, quite frankly. Um, I always felt like you should be able to to step on a football pitch and, and try to entertain people so that when they leave at the end of the 90 minutes, they don't feel like they've been robbed of their money because they've just sat and watched a shit game of football. And <laughs> um, when you say um, that 
it shouldn't be taken too seriously. What does that exactly mean? Well, it's a game. It's not life or death. It's a sport. Sport shouldn't be that serious. Sport should be about people, yeah, wanting to do the best that they can, be the best that they, that they can at, at what their chosen sport is. Um, but they should be able to do that with a sense of enjoyment. I sometimes get the feeling that there's a lot of footballers that don't enjoy their job. And I don't know, I, I, I played football because so I loved it. I loved football. I loved entertaining people. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to live my life and I got, I got paid a decent amount of money for basically playing my hobby every single day. And it was amazing. And I get the feeling that a lot of players don't feel like that. And it shows. Any player in particular you think not enjoying it? Oh, well, I mean, even, I can, even in my era, you know, there were players that didn't enjoy it, didn't, didn't even want to be a footballer, didn't even enjoy football. But they were quite good at it and they could make a good living at it, so they did it anyway. Um, but I, I think the, the stresses and strains that the, the players are put under now, um, I think they find it hard, they look like they find it hard to enjoy it. Um, you know, I'm not going to single out individual players, so I don't think that's fair. Mm. Um, but on the whole, uh, I, I don't get the sense that players are really enjoying their jobs. And what are, uh, I'm not in, I'm a fan, but I'm not in um, the industry, so I'm just purely asking this out of interest, but what are those stresses and strains that they didn't used to be when you played? Uh, so I think the stresses and strains are uh, social media, which wasn't around when I played, uh, camera phones, which means that they can't really go anywhere or step a single foot out of line in public because at some point someone will have a camera, someone would have filmed it and within five minutes of them doing what they were doing, it's all over the world on social media. Uh, and that's, that's hard to have to live your life knowing that there are pitfalls around and knowing that somebody could be video, videoing you that you don't even know. Um, and you could be out having a laugh with your mates. You could say something that was quite funny in the moment. And this is what I'm talking about, you know, with policing of words, that you can make a, you can make a joke uh, and yet people would take it seriously. And what you've said in that joke was, I don't know, racist, sexist, uh, whatever you want to, and, and all of a sudden it's out into the ether of the internet and all over the world. And all of a sudden you're now fined two weeks wages you're, you have to make a public apology because you didn't want to offend the people that you know you made a joke about. Get over it. It just drives me mad that people have to have to do that. You know, the easily offended people need to just. Uh, for me, it's a society where people are just looking to be offended all the time now, and I, I find that quite oppressive, quite frankly. Um, you know, I live and let live. If people want to take the piss out of me because I've got a big nose, carry on. You know, I don't give a fuck. Um, <laughs> and quite frankly, the more people that add that attitude, the better the world will be um, because you just can't get offended at words. You know, that just drives me mad sometimes. world's got to chill out a bit, have a laugh. Stop getting offended by stupid shit.
And why are people so easily offended? And then why are they so keen to voice that? Well, it's not only that people are easily offended. They've now started getting offended on other people's behalves of people who aren't even offended. Now, that's the fucking brilliant one, that one. <laughs> Honestly, I just, just... Something in society must have changed. Uh, yeah, what has changed? Uh, the media have changed. The media's... What, what media's perception? Uh, media tell you what to think these days. They don't tell you the news. Uh, and so if they tell you you can't make a joke about a certain demographic of people, you know, then you can't make a joke. I mean, I hate to be a comedian in this day and age. Jeez. Well, Ricky Gervais doesn't seem to give a shit. Well, if you've got enough money like Ricky <laughs> yeah. Gervais, you don't give a shit. Yeah. And uh, and I have to say, I watched Supernature last oh, he week. He picked every single I, thing he shouldn't say and said it. I haven't laughed so much <laughs> at the television in many, really many too, years. Yeah. It was just incredible. I mean... It take, it, you've got to be a good comedian to make me laugh out, properly laugh out loud uh, at the television. And he did it so much in that, in that hour. Mm. Uh, it was brilliant. And I think we need more Ricky Gervais. Yeah. I mean, his speech at the Golden Globes, was it? Was it? <laughs> that was just the funniest seven-minute speech I've ever seen in my life. And uh, fair play, Ricky Gervais. You've done well. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely got an attitude of... Can do what I want. And do you know what? I think the more people that have that attitude, the less you know, the less the cancel culture people yeah. uh, will fade into the background. You know, because you can only be cancelled if you let them cancel you. Mm. So don't, well, actually, let, don't let them cancel you. No. Keep speaking out. Keep talking about it and shine a light on these people. Um, yeah, that's the way I think it should go. Anyway. Yeah, I just want to shout out to that um, super nature that. Ricky Gervais because I love the way he weaves in a bit of political commentary and then his jokes yes. and then yeah I thought it's it was very clever very clever yeah um, footballer salaries at the moment this is upsetting me because I'm a Liverpool fan and we're going to lose Mane because of it we might lose Salah because of it because Liverpool won't go on that gravy train they want to run it in a different way and in many ways I admire it but we're going to lose out um, what are your thoughts on football salaries and where it's going? Um, I think if the if the money is in football, uh, then I think the players should be rewarded accordingly because they're the ones giving the entertainment. Uh, so I think you have to when you when you look at the problems of the of the money and the pressures that clubs are under. This is this is where the problem starts. When people start gambling the club's future uh, on success and spending money that they can't afford, so I mean, what, whatever the financial fair play rules are, which nobody uh, can actually understand because they're so freaking complicated. Uh, and then what they what, this is the the thing that makes me laugh about the financial fair play is they go, right, financial fire player, you can't break those rules. If you break those rules, we're going to fine you. Well, the reason they've broken those rules is because they've got loads of money. <laughs> Finding them is not really going to hurt them. So why would you do that? So basically, they, they've made a load of rules to try and appease people, but the rules are toothless and they do shit all, basically. Um, so that's got to go for a start. I think the problem lies with the, with the owners of the football clubs who are prepared to be held to ransom by the agents. Now, people go, oh, the agents are bad people. They're, they're holding the clubs to ransom. 
well, if all the owners got together and went, actually, we're, we're only ever going to pay this much, uh, that takes away the problem then, because if everyone agrees to that, then the agents won't have anywhere to go. They can't, they can't hold us a ransom and go, well, we'll go here because they're going to pay us more. You go, well, they can't because this is what we've agreed is to be the, the highest amount that we're going to pay. So there's all your clubs that want to pay you all that money. Just choose one. Yeah, simple as that. But um, uh, I think egos get involved. I think the, the money is also obviously flooded into football by the media. Um, so it's very difficult then to when you start messing about with the fixtures um, and the, the people that get shafted at the end of the day are the fans. Um, it's it, it's so complicated and so yeah. complex uh, that the, the player salaries. I, I don't blame the players one bit. You know, no. they're they're the ones. If the money's there, the money's coming into football, then why shouldn't the players be rewarded? Uh, I think a lot of there are a lot of players that are rewarded probably disproportionately given their ability um, but that's the that's the way of the world that's mm. the the financial situation that the clubs are in they can afford to pay these people these this money mm. but um, I, I, I if I was in charge of a football club I, I, I'm not sure I'd be paying the kind of wages that I'm paying for the return that I get in terms of their output on a football field mm. Is a bit disproportionate. Um, why are the fans shafted? The fans are shafted because uh, kickoff times get moved at short notice when they've bought their train tickets, they've sorted out their accommodation, um, they spend a lot of money following their football club, and, and at short notice they go, actually, game's not on a Saturday anymore, it's on uh, Monday night. And uh, if you want to travel all the way down to Southampton from Newcastle on a Monday night and try and get back, fucking good luck to you. Um, so all that kind of stuff happens and the fans are the ones that get shafted it's very expensive to go and watch football these days with all the amount of money that is coming in to the game through sponsorship and through the through the media the tickets should be cheaper than what they are mm. so I, I, I just feel like they take advantage they take advantage of the fans because they know that the fans love their club and they'll do anything to support their club uh, and they take advantage of that by charging them too much money moving the kickoffs at short notice. Um, and I feel sorry for the fans. Mm. Yeah, the whole Champions League final thing. I mean, I tried to go. <laughs> Did you? Good, good luck. At least you didn't? Uh, well, <laughs> not just because Liverpool didn't win, but yeah, because of what happened. Um, I mean, yeah. madness that a kickoff would be, be delayed by... I mean, when they said 15 minutes, you knew it wasn't 15 minutes. You knew you were being lied to. But the five to 25 grand it would have cost to go. All EasyJet flights, two, three grand. You know, you club together. It's just, it's like, Incredible. yeah. Incredible. Again, yeah. we're just taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. Airlines, massive profiteering. But yeah, that's the way the world's gone. Mm. Were you ever close to leaving Southampton? Yeah, I nearly joined Spurs when I was 21. Ah, but that was obviously quite early in your career. It was. That was the, the closest I ever came. In fact, Spurs were the only team I ever spoke to. Right. Southampton didn't know about it. No. <laughs> I did. I had a meeting with Spurs, which I, I'm happy to admit all these years later. Yeah. Um, How long did you keep it a secret for? Well, 
Uh, I kept it a secret. Uh, so this happened in 1990, uh, and I, it was kept a secret for about seven or eight years. And then the chairman of Spurs at the time was a guy called Irving Scholar, uh, and he did an autobiography in about 1997, I think 98 maybe. Uh, and in his autobiography, he decided to write about this meeting that took place with me. Um, so it was no longer a secret. So, uh, yeah, that was... Um, that was the closest I ever came. I, I'd agreed terms with Spurs and everything. Uh, I was just about to get married at the time. Uh, and um, in the end, my fiance decided she didn't want to go and live in London. So I had to make a decision. I either joined Spurs or I got married. So I got married. <laughs> Six years later, I was divorced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I, again, I, I have no regrets about that. I don't, I don't blame my ex-wife. I'm not, I'm not mad at my ex-wife for, for that. I, I made the decision uh, ultimately, and, and I take responsibility for those decisions. And to this day, I have no regrets about spending my whole career at Southampton. Mm. And were you, um, were you upset when the news of that meeting came out in the autobiography? Um, I was a little bit disappointed that that what was a gentleman's agreement should have stayed mm. uh, that way. Um, I don't think it was really necessary to write about that. I don't think it added anything to his book, quite frankly. Um, so I, think, I don't know, it's just, I, I, I was a bit disappointed that it came out, but shit happens, not that bothered really. You could have surely made some big money leaving Southampton at the pinnacle of your career. Um, I kind of, back in the day, it would have been big money. I mean, <laughs> the money that we're talking about, uh, that I could have made in those days is probably money that if you're playing in League One now, that's probably what you're earning. Mm. So it's not, you know, it wasn't mega in terms of what you're seeing in today's money. Um, you know, the, the most I ever earned at Southampton uh, as a basic wage was just under four grand a week. Um, so, you know, it wasn't the, the kind of money. And if I would have, I had a chance to join Chelsea, I think it was in 1995. Um, I was thinking about a couple of grand a week, probably at that point. I might, if I'd have gone to Chelsea, I might have been on, I don't know, nine or ten. So although it was, it was a lot of money. If you if you equate that to what's going on in today's mm. money, not really that big. No. You know, um, yeah, like I say, you've probably got players in League One in that kind of money. Yeah, but it's all relative and inflation. Inflation's high right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wonder why. <laughs> Fucking lockdowns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to, I'm just going to say, I shouldn't move this conversation back because it's moving nicely, but we're going to be paying for this for a lot of freaking years to come, aren't we? Financially. If, My God, it's ridiculous. Yeah. The amount of money that we printed. Uh, and people thought it was great, you know, being on furlough, sat at home, doing nothing, get paid, not realising that at some point in the future, they're going to have to pay for that. Yeah. Uh, and people were warning about it. Not This is not a hindsight thing. People warned about this right from day one, and their warnings were ignored, and now everything's coming home to roost. Mm. Why did you stay at Southampton your whole career? Why were you so loyal? Um, well, I, I, I love the area for a start. Uh, I love the fans. They were brilliant to me in my early days. They were amazing. The support I got from them was incredible. You know, given that... I wasn't great every game, you know. I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't the most consistent. Uh, 
performer in my early years. Um, but they were always incredibly supportive of me. Um, they loved what I did, what I was trying to do. Um, they loved the fact I was a bit different. Um, uh, and so they, they were a big reason why I, why I didn't go. I, and I always felt like I owed Southampton something. Um, you know, I was just a little kid from Guernsey who dreamed of becoming a professional footballer. Uh, and Southampton were the ones that gave me my opportunity to do that. You know, I wanted to play for England uh, and I managed to do that whilst I was playing for Southampton. So uh, I was I was eternally grateful for for the chance that Southampton gave me to, to fulfil my dreams as a kid. And why aren't modern players of that attitude, why aren't they as loyal anymore? Or, um, or are they? Or am I wrong about that? No, I think that... There might be the, the occasional one. Um, not many though, are there? No, there, there's not many. And there, to be honest, there wasn't that many in my day. Right. Um, I, I see the the one thing that, that was labelled at me through my career was, was oh, you stayed at Southampton, you had a lack of ambition. Um, well, actually, what they don't realise is, as a little kid coming from Guernsey, my ambition was to be a professional footballer who not many Guernsey men had ever been a professional footballer. And I wanted to play for England. No Guernsey men had ever played for England. That's quite lofty ambitions for a, for a little kid in Guernsey. <laughs> so when people go, oh, you had no ambition. I go, well, actually, think about it. I had quite a big ambition, actually. For, for I wanted to be the first Guernsey men ever to play for England. And I did that. Mm. So um, uh, it's just, yeah, that's one of those things that you have to you have to put up with as a professional footballer is that people like to criticise mm. and you just deal with that. That's probably actually stood me in really good stead for the last two years because <laughs> that, those years of spending a lot of time being criticised by the media, um, it actually just bounces off and I don't really give a shit about the media, to be honest. Yeah. I know there's a lot of people that don't have that kind of Teflon. I know. And... What would you say to someone who does get easily upset by what other people think? It's difficult because not, I know that not everybody's the same. You know, not everybody has, has my mentality. And, it's, and not, every, not everybody is able to take on that mentality because we're all made up differently. Mm. Um, so it would be easy for me to, to just go, well, just ignore them. <laughs> because not, it's, not, it's not as easy as that. No. Um, so it's it's not something that you can kind of you can give advice on. It's just the way that I am, um, and uh, I I'd like to think that I could encourage more people to be a bit braver um, by speaking out for what they believe in. And I think at the end of the day, if if you know something's wrong, um, then you should be confident enough to be able to come out and say that in public. Um, if you feel like that's going to get you in trouble or you feel like you're going to lose your job because of it, then you have to take the broader view and think, oh, hang on, is that the kind of world that I want to live in? You know, and I don't want to live in that world, so that's why I've chosen mm. to, to speak out. So I would encourage other people. And the whole thing about I don't want to speak out because I might lose my job, well, actually, I found that my life has improved because I lost my job. So there is, there is another way, and yeah. it's not all bad on the other side. 
which is very inspiring to say to people because I guess a lot of people probably are in a bit of a prison in yeah. their mind. No, very much so, very much so. And, and sometimes it's, it's good to go out of your comfort zone. You know, I was in, in very much in a, in a comfort zone. You know, I had a steady job, sat on the television once a week, sometimes twice if I had a busy week. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was you know, playing, playing lots of golf and I, and I had a good life. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, I, I'm, I'm far happier in my life now mm. than what I was two years ago. Which is great. <laughs> I'm happy. And I think that's the thing um, as well, is that uh, I think I, had a, I get a lot, of, I had a lot of text messages, especially after the, the whole Ukraine tweet thing uh, and, and the abuse that I was getting in the media. And I had a lot of um, messages from people on my phone going, just checking in with you and making sure you're okay. And I was like, what are you on about? <laughs> Absolutely fine, what's the matter with you? I've never been happier. <laughs> Uh, as the, 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 the horrible bit about it all is that it kind of sometimes it affects the people around you more than it affects me. So because I don't give a shit, I say stuff and, and I don't care um, because it's what I believe in. Yeah. Uh, and you get criticism and uh, the worst bit is when other people go to other members of your, of your family and go, oh, what about, what about your dad? What's your dad said? And blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and you go, oh. I said, what are you doing that to my family for? Leave my family alone. Come and speak to me if you've got a problem. Do you know what I mean? If you've got a problem, I'll talk to you about it. I'll, I'll talk to anyone. And, yeah. and this is the, the thing. I've, I've been quite vocal about stuff, but I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to think that everything I say is, is true. Mm. It's what I believe is happening at the moment. But if somebody could point me to some evidence that I'm wrong and I'll, I will actually look at that evidence and if I look at it and go, oh blimey, actually I've been wrong, I've been wrong about that. I'll be the first person to put my hand up and go, shit, I'm really sorry I was wrong. Mm. I don't see that in a lot of other people mm. and uh, people kind of get entrenched in their positions and go, right, this is, this, is it. This, is, this is the narrative, this is what I'm sticking to, and no matter how much evidence you show me, I ain't changing my mind. Mm. Uh, and that's a really bad position for you to be in in your life. I think you have to have a really open mind about shit, and, uh, and that's what I've got. If somebody, somebody came up with, with some evidence and went, well, this is, this is what's happened really lot, I'll be, oh, right, okay, mm. fair enough. And, uh, and you'll see me on Getter going, I was wrong. Yeah. Well, what's jumping out to me here, and the reason I'm sort of driving at this is because um, I have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen, and they want to start their business. They want to put their product out to the world. They want to sell more stuff. Um, and of course, we're in this culture where there's a lot more awareness of mental health. So I just really like it when people can model things that have worked for other successful people. Um, and what's, what I'm picking up here is it's okay. It's okay to be wrong. It's mm -hmm. okay to have your opinion, opinion in vo voice it. It's okay um, for someone to be offended as long as, you know, they're not using it in a nefarious way. So what I'm just picking up is, it's okay. Absolutely, it's okay. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have an opinion. Uh, and it's okay to have a wrong opinion. So what? <laughs> Get on with it. That's how we do it. That's how we move forward in life is, you don't talk, if you don't talk about stuff, how do you improve things? Yeah. You don't, if you don't see a counter-argument, 
how do you improve on what, what we've done so far? How do we get this far as human beings if we didn't talk to each other and have different opinions? Yeah. We didn't get to this position by just having one opinion on everything. Uh-huh. That's not how the world works. And you know, uh, I think that I think if I if I had any message, it would, it would be shit happens. Just get on with it. I love it. You know we should I mean? have that the title. <laughs> <laughs> shit happens. Just get on with it. Yeah. What makes a great pundit? Uh, what makes a great pundit? This um, for me watching watching football. Um, I think a great pundit is somebody who would give a little bit of insight into the game that perhaps somebody who wasn't in the game wouldn't know. So I think I think the best pundits pick up on on little nuances that perhaps most people wouldn't have recognised. And who out of all the pundits you've worked with or you see currently who you think is really good? Uh, I think I think Gary uh, Neville has done a very good job. Uh, I think he's um, I think he delves very deeply and does his research very well uh, on the teams that he's working on. Um, so I like what Gary does. Uh, he he sometimes so even as a professional footballer, I'll listen to Gary and I go, oh, I didn't notice that because quite frankly, when it came to tactics in football. <laughs> I didn't really give a shit. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> the theme? <Yeah>. So, <laughs> although I was in a formation, <laughs> I was put in a formation, I didn't really take a lot of notice of it and I tended to kind of just do my own thing <laughs> on the pitch. Um, and so I didn't really take a huge amount of notice of, of tactics and formations during my career, <laughs> which, uh, which amazingly I then did 15 years as a pundit telling people about formations <laughs> and tactics. But I learned as I went along. Mm. Um, but, I t- but I didn't, I mean, in my job, it wasn't really, it wasn't really so much about the, the nuances. It, it, my job was very different to what Gary does. Yeah. Um, you know, on Soccer Saturday, we were just reporting on the game. We were just trying to paint a picture of what we were watching to the, to the viewers. Mm. Um, and so, that's what I, I tried to do. And I tried to do that from a football fan's perspective because I was, I was a football fan. Once I finished being a footballer, okay, I'm an ex-footballer, but I'm now a football fan. Mm. And I try and relate my experiences of being a football fan and trying to you know, tell people what was happening without them actually seeing the pictures. So, mm. um, so yeah, I think pundits for me have different role in different roles. So a soccer Saturday pundit is different to a, a, a Gary Neville Monday Night Football pundit, who is also very different, again, to doing a co-commentary role. So Gary merges the two roles, mm. um, but they're very different. Um, uh, and I actually tried, I did a few co-commentaries, oh, blimey, 12, 13 years ago, I think it was. Um, and it's a very, very different job to what I was doing on Soccer Saturday, and I don't think I was very good at it. That's why it didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's what I reckon. Anyway. <laughs> they told me they told me that they wanted me primarily for soccer Saturday, uh, and they didn't want to mix the two roles. Basically, that was a polite way of going. You're shit at co-commentary. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a theme of Sky not revealing the full truth. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. Should we do a quick fire round, Matt? Go for it. Um, whatever you want. So okay. we've got maybe seven or eight questions. Um, we like the answers to be 30 seconds. Of course, you can go longer if you want, but it's also a little bit of a sign to you that we're nearly at the end. No problem. <laughs> Matt, what's the craziest thing you saw in football as a player or a pundit? Oh, 
the craziest thing I saw in football was probably Eric Cantona, our kung fu kicking a supporter. That was pretty. But that was pretty wild. <laughs> well, what did you think? Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you what I really thought. <laughs> Because I, I probably had those thoughts at, on uh, some occasions when I was getting abused by someone in the crowd. Yeah. I just never acted on them. <laughs> Matt, what pays more, football or punditry? Um, football pays more in terms of um, my enjoyment. I've got to have it. What's the best lesson you ever got from another footballer? Or, uh, yeah, um, Jimmy Case, as a seasoned ex-pro, and me being a very young lad at Southampton who thought he was great, uh, he he taught me very early on, don't hold on to the ball too long when you're playing shadow play against uh, an experienced professional footballer. Um, because uh, we, we, we played this game where we had loads of men attacking against only like five or six defenders. So it was like 11 against six. So of course we had a lot of ball, a lot of time on the ball, and uh, but it should have been played at match pace. But I thought I've got loads of time here. I'm just going to mess about, do a little. And Jimmy Case, who was one of the defenders, decided that after I'd laid the ball off, he was just going to smash the shit out of me. Uh, <laughs> and he just went, do it properly, do it at match pace. Don't take the piss. And so from then on, I played match pace, and I didn't take the piss out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, who's the most underrated player ever, in your opinion? Cool, that's a question. Uh, underrated player ever. Uh, I, am I allowed to include myself in this? You can include whoever you want. Yeah, I'm going to go for me. I was underrated. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> this leads nicely onto this question, which is Harry's, by the way. Um, Matt, in your prime, were you better than Kareem Benzema? Well, I mean... We were very different players. I mean, Kareem Benzema is a, an outstanding centre forward. I was never a centre forward, um, so we played in different parts of the field. Um, given what Kareem Benzema has achieved in his career, it would be very difficult for me to sit here and go, "I'm better than Kareem Benzema." Sorry, Harry, you, did, you didn't get what you wanted there. <laughs> Harry said, "If you can get one thing, please have Matt say he's better than Kareem Benzema." It's, it, it's, I would say it's very difficult to, to compare players that play in different positions in a football. You know, it's, it's very subjective. Mm. Who's the best player you ever played against? The best player I ever played against? I always say there was two players who stood out for me. Um, Thierry Henry was one of them, um, who I thought, you know, in his pomp, he sometimes looked like he was an adult playing in kids' football. He was that good. Um, so he would be right up there. And in 1992, I had to, uh, we, as Southampton, had a pre-season tour of Italy and we played Juventus. And I got to play against Roberto Baggio, who for me was just, like, he was my kind of player. He was somebody that I looked to and went, wow. The position that he played in was kind of, you know, very similar to the positions I played in. Um, he didn't have a massive amount of pace, which, you know, a lot of respect for uh, players who can be that good and not be very quick, because uh, obviously pace is uh, a huge asset to have in football. You have to be extremely talented to not have any pace and have the influence that Roberto Baggio had on his mm. football teams. What was your lowest moment as a football player? Day I retired. 
Wow. Can you tell us about that? Mm. Well, it wasn't the day I retired, it was the day I decided to retire. So um, I was only 33. uh, I'd spent most of that season kind of fighting to get fit from calf injuries. Um, And in about the March of that season, it was the first season we were at St Mary's, uh, the new stadium, I was playing in a reserve game uh, on the pitch at St Mary's and after about 25 minutes, my calf broke down again. It just it just went and it was just horrible. Uh, and I realised at that point I couldn't do it anymore. My contract was up at the end of the season and uh, and I realised I, I didn't want to put Southampton in the position of, you know, going, yeah, we're not offering you a new contract. You're old and fat. We're not giving you any more money. Um, and so at that point, when I walked off that pitch, I knew that I would, I would have to retire at the end of the season. I couldn't, I couldn't do what I used to be able to do anymore. Um, and I'm not too ashamed to admit, I walked down the tunnel, I walked into the medical room at St Mary's and I bawled my eyes out. And that was the, that was the worst day of my career because I knew that it was over and I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it again. Did you have any plans beyond your career? Yeah, play golf. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't really. I, I didn't make plans. I'm not really a plan maker. You know, I had, it was, it's quite weird. I should have probably reassessed uh, my ambitions in life because obviously as a kid I only had two and, uh, and I'd done both of them by the time I was 25. Um, so uh, when I got to the end of playing football, I, I, did, you know what? I just wanted to enjoy my life, mm. uh, do what I wanted to be able to do. Uh, I don't have... You know, I don't have expensive tastes, as you can tell by the way I'm dressed. I, uh, I don't, I, I just, I don't know, I just wanted to be able to have a happy life, really. Um, mm. Play golf when I wanted to. You know, if I want to do a bit of work, then I have to do a bit of work. And I was able to do that. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't earn enough money not to be able to work again for the rest of my life. We weren't in that position back in those days. Um, so I've always had to work. But I wanted to, to be in a position where I was able to work a bit and have a lot of time to be able to do stuff that I enjoyed as well mm. um, and I've been lucky enough in the 20 years since I've been retired that that's been the case so um, yeah I've been pretty pretty lucky really. What advice would you give to kids wanting to be a professional footballer? Um, I was asked this question yesterday actually and uh, oh, bollocks <laughs> but it was, it was only a kids football presentation but so I, I gave an answer which I'd never really given before, and I think this is me getting old. Right? So I, I would say learn from my lesson um, that I didn't learn. So my advice would be look after your body better than I did, because as a professional sportsman, I had a shit diet. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really drink alcohol or anything like that, but my diet was shocking, right? I was... I didn't eat a vegetable till I was like 28. <laughs> so I still don't eat. I still don't eat fruit, and it's just I'm shocking. So, and that's probably one of the reasons why I had to retire at 33. So, looking back, I would say, uh, look after your body, uh, and if you do, you can go on and play till you're 40 in this day and age with all the sports science that's available. Um, so that would be that would be the one thing. And the other thing that I would say, and, and this will probably annoy coaches. Um, football coaching but I would say don't be afraid to show off if you've got the ability don't let coaches coach it out of you 
because it's those players that, that are not afraid to make mistakes, not afraid to try something different. They're the ones that make differences in football matches. So don't be afraid to show off, would be my other bit of advice. Mm. Mm. This show is called Disruptors. What does the word disruptive mean to you? What does the word disruptive mean to me? Um, what does disruptive mean? Uh, it means somebody that doesn't conform. <laughs> Let's breathe that one in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Couple more quick ones, Matt. I know you said you're not really a planner, but I'm fascinated where you're going to take the next phase of your career. Me too. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't do planning. Um, I'm obviously, uh, I, I still do after dinner speaking, which I enjoy. I, I like making people laugh. Um, it's, a, it's a nice feeling to have that you can stand up and tell stories about your career um, and people enjoy them and they're quite funny. Uh, so making people laugh is, is a good thing. So I'll carry on doing after dinner speaking. Um, I'll, I'll continue to work for... Uh, uh, Mola TV have been very, very good to me, very supportive of me over these last couple of years. Um, so they, I will always be loyal to them for the support that they've shown me. Um, and and yeah, so I'm I'm pretty pretty set with how my life is at the moment. Pretty happy with where I am in terms of the work that I've got coming in. So uh, I will just continue on this path, and I'll continue shout my mouth off and uh, and upsetting all the right people like Gary Lineker and Piers Morgan and people like that. <laughs> Well, if you get banned on every channel, let's do another episode in a couple of years. No time. problem, yeah. When Getty gets taken over yeah. and I can't speak anymore, we'll have another one. <laughs> do you want to just um, shout out the socials that you're active on so we can all follow your work? Uh, so I am uh, social uh, on social media on Getter is at MattLatist7 and uh, the same handle on Twitter, but... You'll hear more of me on Getter than you will on Twitter. I've never been on any other. So if you've seen me on any other platform, I've never been on Facebook, never been on Instagram. Uh, I'm not. I don't have any influence over those. There. I've only ever done my my own Twitter feed and my own Getter feed now. Well, Matt, I want to thank you two times. One time is for doing this and being so open. My and pleasure. The, and the second time. As a Liverpool fan, what you did to Man U regularly just given me so much pleasure when we were getting trounced. So I want to thank you for that. No too. worries. Thanks, Matt. Thank, thank you, you mate. Much.